passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. But uh, First and Second Samuel, just to remind us, uh, they, are, they are meant to be read together. These two books were originally one book. Uh, we broke it in two um, hundreds of years ago just to make it easier to, I, I think, to write by hand uh, so you'd have two scrolls as opposed to one. So what was originally one book has, has been broken into two, and uh, they essentially have one key message for the entire, entirety of these two books, and it is simply uh, a focus on God's plan for a king. So that, that's the focus of First and Second Samuel. Someone asks you, "Hey, what is what's First and Second Samuel about?" Well, like, well, broad picture, it's all about God's plan for a king. More specifically, this chunk of scripture focuses on the two types of kings. There's a king like the nations, and then there's the type of king that God desires. And First and Second Samuel are all about these two types of kings. There's either the king like the nations or the type of king that God desires. Now, kingship is not something that we normally think of in our day-to-day lives in modern-day America. Our nation, after all, was kind of founded on the rejection of the idea of a king, or at least a king who had little to no interest in the concerns of his subjects. And yet, I would argue that kingship is an important part, not just of the story of the Bible, not just of First and Second Samuel, but it's something that I think that's, that's hardwired into each and every one of us as well. So you look at stories that, that capture the heart, that are, are beloved, like the Lord of the Rings, or the, the, the legends of King Arthur, or you look at movies that, that focus on long, distant kingdoms of grandeur and, and prosperity under a benevolent ruler. I think each of those taps into a heart desire of each with, uh, within each and every one of us. It's a recognition that not only is this life not the way that it was intended to be, but there's also this sense that if we just get the right king, if the right person is sitting on the throne once more, then he will make all things right. And that's the argument of First and Second Samuel. That's the argument of the Bible as a whole. If the right king will come to the throne, he will at long last make all things right. And then the question, of course, that follows is, well, what does that right type of king look like? The people of Israel, they actually had an idea of what type of king they needed. They said, hey, we need a king like the nation's. A generation and a half before the events of 2 Samuel 11, the people of Israel ask for a king, but they don't seek the type of king that God desires. Instead, they want a king like the nations. Notice how the prophet Samuel describes what this type of king is going to be like, a king like the nations, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots. And I just want to pause right here, okay? Notice the repetition of the word take in this chapter, or in these verses. He will take your sons and appoint them to be to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. 
He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys, and he will put them to work. He will take the tenth of your flocks, and you shall be his slaves." So the first thing that the, the book of First and Second Samuel describes, as it's talking about a king like the nations, it's this operative word of take. A king like the nations is someone who takes from his people rather than serving his people. And over the course of First Samuel, we saw that time and time again from Saul. He is the type of king who takes from his people rather than serving them. He is not someone who sees himself as accountable to the Lord, but rather he sees himself as an autonomous ruler who gets to call the shots. He's utterly in charge in his mind. Now that's in contrast to the type of king that God desires. Indeed, the the type of king that our hearts long for, that's hardwired within each and every one of us. Notice this crucial statement from King David at the goal, during the golden era of his reign. It's right after he ascends at long last to the throne over all Israel. We read this in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. David gets it. David understands something crucial about kingship. God gives a king to his people in order to serve them for the sake of his people. Rather than taking from his people, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the king is there to serve. It's for the good of God's people. The people do not exist for the king. The king exists to serve them. And that's the heart of kingship in the Bible. And ultimately, it sums up the message of First and Second Samuel, something that I've said over and over and over during our time in these books. It's simply this. We need a king who will point us to the king of glory, God himself. That's the type of king that God desires. That's the type of king we so desperately need. We need a king who will point us to the king of glory, who will point us to God himself. And in large part, as we look at First and Second Samuel, that's exactly what David does. He fulfills this role as God's king. He knows that God has given him to the people of Israel in order to reflect their true king, which is the Lord God himself. And so David shows a deep concern, not just with becoming king, but also, and probably more importantly, how he becomes king. He shows a deep concern for the worship of the Lord. He brings the ark of God into Jerusalem. After all, if the the Lord is the true king of God's people and the ark is symbolic of his throne, why shouldn't he be in the capital? David is a man of worship and integrity and concern for the poor and the vulnerable and oppressed. Now, he's far from perfect. We've seen that over and over. Unfortunately, we'll see it again this morning. But as 
a whole, David is the type of king that Israel so desperately needs and, I would say, that our hearts long for. And yet, then we come to this morning's text. And we look at this morning's text and we see that this morning's passage is not only a moment that will tarnish David's legacy, but that will affect the rest of his reign. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is the start of a new section in the book of 2 Samuel. Chapters 11 through 20 show us over and over and over again that David, in spite of all the good that he has done, is not the king that we so desperately need. We need a better king. If there's going to be a king who is going to make all things right, then we need someone better than David. Now, interestingly, 2 Samuel chapter 11 picks up in the middle of a war that is taking place between Israel and one of their neighbors, the Ammonites. So if we, were to, if we would have been in 2 Samuel chapter 10 last week, we would have seen David's greatness as he defeated his enemies to the north as well as to the east. 2 Samuel chapter 10, David can do nothing wrong. He, he's uh, on display. His greatness is on display. And this continues as we look at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 12, the, the end of David's war with the Ammonites. David captures the capital city of the Ammonites. And yet, sandwiched in between 2 Samuel chapter 10 and 2 Samuel chapter 12, in the midst of these amazing victories that show David's greatness, we have the bulk of this chapter, this lengthy story, all about David's adultery with Bathsheba. Do you see how the Bible is structured in a way that is intentionally communicating something? Don't miss the message of how God has structured this. 2 Samuel chapter 10, the end of 2 Samuel chapter 12, tell us of one of David's greatest, most impressive accomplishments, his victories as king. To the world, David is the consummate king. He is the one that you want. He's going to lead you to victory. But God is far more concerned with what takes place back home in Jerusalem. He's far more concerned with David's heart rebellion against the Lord here in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and spilling into 2 Samuel chapter 12. I think we would do well before we even jump into this text, to just take to heart the Lord's priorities on display here in 2 Samuel chapter 10, 11, and 12. That God is far less impressed with worldly accomplishments than you and I are. What God desires is men and women who will gladly and humbly walk in his ways, something that David fails to do here. So that's the context of 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's go ahead and jump into this text. 2 Samuel 11 really centers on four different interactions with David and someone else. And so we're going to follow that story, and then we'll consider five or six implications from this text this morning. Would you pray with me as we jump into God's word? 
Father, I, um, I ask as we consider your word this morning that you would indeed speak to us as one of the songs that we sang earlier says that your word brings revival. And I guess I, I ask that you would do that within each and every one of us, that you would, through your word, reveal to us what it means to follow you. We ask that you would use this passage to expose the reality of the awfulness of sin in your sight. God, as we consider the story of David and Bathsheba, I ask that we would not primarily be consumed with the failure of David, but God, that in your mercy, you would give us eyes to see the ways that we have also chosen to willfully go against you, to go against your way. And yet, I pray that we would not magnify sin for sin's sake this morning. Instead, we would magnify the grace of the Lord Jesus, who offers to all of us, who would turn to him in repentance and faith, this wonderful mercy that we see on display in this passage. We ask these things for Jesus' sake and in his name. Amen. All right, the first interaction of 2 Samuel chapter 11 focuses on David and Bathsheba. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 1. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof of a woman, roof, a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. All right, let's stop there. Winter in Israel was the wet season, which means swollen rivers uh, makes travel a little more difficult. And so it was common for military campaigns to kind of be put on, on pause and then uh, when, when winter arrived and then to resume in the spring. And David's battles with the Ammonites that we, I mentioned are in, in 2 Samuel chapter 10, David actually pressed pause on those for the winter. And now that the weather is cooperating, he decides it's time to resume these battles against the Ammonites. Now, some say that David is actually neglecting his duty here uh, by not traveling with the people of Israel and going out with his army. And I don't, I don't think so, honestly. After all, a king has a number of responsibilities, not just as a military commander. Notice specifically the type of military action that's taking place in this passage. It's a siege. Sieges take a very, very, very long time. We see here it actually takes over a year until Rabbah is finally captured. So David remains in Jerusalem. I think that's okay. I don't think the text is condemning him for that action. And yet, while David is walking, while he is in Jerusalem, he takes a walk on his rooftop in the cool early evening. This, again, is a normal occurrence for people in that day and age. Homes had poor circulation of air, and it would have been very hot. So they, would be, they were built with flat roofs that honestly served as an extra living space where you could rest in the cool evening breeze. And that's exactly what David's doing. David is on the top of his roof. He's, he's enjoying the breeze uh, cooling off in the evening, and he happens to see a woman bathing while he is on his rooftop. Now, one question gets raised here, and, and this will come up over and over in the course of 2 Samuel, is whether or not Bathsheba is in the wrong for what transpires. And what I want us to do is I want us to focus on what the text focuses on. Because this, and this is an important question, because the question is, is this an affair or is this a form of rape? What is, what is taking place here? 
But here's what we know from the text. The text tells us never once does it say anything about what Bathsheba is thinking. Never once does it tell us what Bathsheba is feeling. The blame for Bathsheba, or I would say the lack thereof in this passage, is a non-issue in the text. Maybe she did do something wrong. The text is saying, don't worry, don't focus on that. You're asking the wrong question. David is the focus. David is certainly to blame. That's all that matters, according to the author of 2 Samuel chapter 11, at least from this perspective. So let's go ahead and keep reading, picking up in verse 3. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. I think it's significant to note that by the end of verse 2, David has done nothing wrong. It was an accident, or at least out of his control, that he's on his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And he could have, in that moment, gone back to his house and put this out of his mind. But that's not what we see here in verse 3 and 4. David will not rest until he sleeps with this woman. And so he sends messengers to find out who she is. And he finds out that she is married, and David doesn't care. David doesn't care that she is married to one of his best soldiers. Uriah the Hittite is listed as one of David's mighty men, one of his chief commanders of his army in 2 Samuel chapter 23. He doesn't care that Bathsheba's father, Eliam, is also one of his best army commanders, according to 2 Samuel chapter 23. He doesn't care that her grandfather, Ahithophel, is one of his closest advisors in his kingdom. David doesn't care. If possible, the description here of Bathsheba's family makes David's actions even more appalling. She's almost certainly a generation younger than him. She's married to one of his most devoted allies. She's the daughter and granddaughter of David's close friends. And even now, her husband and her father are on the front lines out in Ammon, doing David's bidding, fighting for his name, fighting for his renown. And you know what? David doesn't care. The language of these verses shows just how animalistic David is in this moment. Do you catch the staccato of the verbs here in this passage? David sent, David inquired, David sent, David took, David lay. Did you catch the word took here? We saw that back in 1 Samuel chapter 8. A king like the nations is a king who takes. God desires for his king's to serve. What's even more sobering about this is that David, it seems like David doesn't even care about this woman. Never once are we told that David loves her, that David has affection for her. There's no mention of any interest whatsoever in her except this lust-driven need to sleep with her. And when he gets done with her, he sends her back home because he's gotten what he wanted out of her. He's gotten that out of his system, and now he can move on. Except 
that he can't. And the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Those are the words of verse 5. In God's original plan, those three words, I am pregnant, are a cause for great rejoicing. And yet here, they strike terror into David's soul. Because this king, who was consumed only with himself, now finds himself in an even stickier situation. David knows that the law of God demands death for adultery. So now David's got this problem on his hands because how is he going to handle this great sin? And that's what we see in the next section. Bathsheba fades to the background. David's gotten what he wants out of her. Now she's just a problem. And now we turn our attention to the second interaction, David and Uriah picking up in verse six. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So here we see David sends for Uriah from the front lines. He, he pretends that he actually wants an update on the battle. In reality, he's completely uninterested. Notice that the text here shows in verse 7, the, the questions that David asks of Uriah. He asks how Joab is doing. He asks how the people were doing. He asks how the war was going. There's no answer recorded. David doesn't actually care. He's just pretending to care. So he has the guise of, of the, the, the circumstances that he needs to get him out of this situation. His only concern is found in verse eight. He wants Uriah to go home and to sleep with his wife so David will have plausible deniability as to whose child this is. Verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Unfortunately for David, Uriah refuses. He's a principled man, and he refuses to sleep with his wife while the people of Israel are engaged in battle. You catch the irony here. Uriah the Hittite, this Gentile, refuses to sleep with his wife on principle. David, the king, has no such qualms and instead decides to sleep with Uriah's wife. And we're left wondering, well, who is the one who stands approved in God's eyes? Is it the Gentile, or is it the king? Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. 
David realizes that his plan has failed, so he decides he's going to send Uriah back to the front lines. But before he does that, he gets him drunk, hoping that that will loosen his commitment to his convictions. Again, David's plan fails. The irony here is Uriah, even when drunk, is more principled than David while sober. And so David will have to resort to his fallback plan, which is in the next section. David has failed with Uriah. He turns to Joab. This is our third interaction. David and Joab, starting in verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So David sends a messenger to Joab by the hands of Uriah, saying, have Uriah killed. He's about to put Uriah against the hardest fighters uh, of Rabbah and then have the rest of the army retreat. That's David's desire, all right? His, his desire is to send everyone out, and then all of a sudden everyone falls back except for Uriah, abandoning him, sealing his doom. Now, if you're familiar with Joab from our time here in 2 Samuel, Joab is well-skilled in getting what he wants, well-skilled in deceit, no matter how wicked the actions might be. And so he immediately sees the flaw in David's plan. David wants Uriah dead as a part of a cover-up, but everyone in the army is going to immediately suspect something if Uriah is abandoned and left to die. And so Joab knows that if David wants Uriah dead, it's going to cost more than just Uriah's life to make it convincing. So he orders a group of men to fight against the most skilled of the Ammonites, and this is poor military tactics in a siege, but it accomplishes what David wants. A group of Israelites die, but in David's eyes, most importantly, Uriah is among them. Verse 18, then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So Joab sends a messenger back informing David of the battle. Joab knows that David is going to be angry with him because multiple men have died. David only wanted one to die. Multiple men have died. David even though he's 50 miles away in Jerusalem, can see that Joab is a fool if this is the type of military action that he is going to take. Why, Joab, would you go so close to the wall? Is there any common sense left in Israel? And so Joab prepares the messenger for this outburst of anger from David and tells the messenger the ace in the hole. If David gets angry about this military defeat, just tell him that Uriah is one of those who is dead. 
Now, before we continue, I think it is worth looking at something that the text is, is saying here in this anticipated response of David that Joab says. It's in verse 29. In verse 29, David mention, or excuse me, Joab mentions Abimelech. This comes out of nowhere. So we might say, what exactly does this, what does this mean? What, what's going on here? Well, this is a reference to Judges chapter 9. It's a messy story. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, it's all messy. Abimelech was the son of Gideon. We might be familiar with Gideon, the judge. After Gideon dies, Abimelech kills all of his brothers, and then he sets himself up as king over Israel. But the people turn on him. And when they turn on him, Abimelech fights back, and he is eventually killed at random by a woman throwing a stone over the wall of a besieged city. Now, don't miss the connection that 2 Samuel is making here. It's making a very important claim about David. It's saying that David has started to go down a very dangerous path. See, just like Abimelech, he has turned against the people of Israel. If this news about Uriah comes out, the people are going to turn against him just like they turned against Abimelech. And what's more, Abimelech's death was tied to a woman. If David doesn't turn his life around, then his end will be the exact same as Abimelech. David here is a far cry from the good king that he once was. And 2 Samuel is giving a warning that David needs to turn around before it's too late. Verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archer shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. So word is brought back to David. The messenger doesn't even give David a chance to respond here in anger. He tells him about Uriah's death right away. And how does David, how does David respond here? Is he at last convicted of his sin? Because now his sin with Bathsheba has, has spiraled out of control, and now it's led to the death of Uriah, not only to, of Uriah, but other Israelites as well. Verse 25 again. David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. In other words... David responds to this news of military defeat by saying, well, that's just what happens in war. Don't lose any sleep over it. You see how calloused David is here? For David, the death of multiple men is worth it as long as no one knows about this whole thing with Bathsheba. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, 
she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. I imagine that David throws a great funeral for Uriah, this national hero. He gives the eulogy. This man was so brave, he was so honorable. Oh, if we only had more men like Uriah. And after a set period of mourning, David, being the benevolent king that he is, takes the widowed Bathsheba into his house. After all, who else is going to take care of her? David, just like Uriah, is so loyal to his people. He's so honorable. What a king. Isn't Israel so lucky to have a king who cares so deeply about his men and their families that he will provide for their widows even after their death? a lie, of course. But David has gotten all that he wants. He's gotten away with it. And there might be some, like Joab, who suspect what's going on, but Joab isn't the type of person who's going to spill David's secrets. And those messengers that were sent to fetch Bathsheba may suspect, but it's also just as likely that David wanted to check on the welfare of the family of one of his best soldiers. And David gets away with it. And the message of 2 Samuel chapter 11 is apparently if you have the power and you have the means, you can do whatever you want, you can have whoever you want, and no one can do anything about it. And that, what's more, no one will ever know. But that's not how the chapter ends. David may think he got away with it. David may think that no one knows, but the scriptures will not let us be deluded. For even if everyone in the world may not know, David has forgotten about the one who sees everything. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Here in the very last sentence of the very last verse in this chapter, finally, for the first time, God is mentioned. And throughout the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11, it would be tempting for us to conclude God doesn't care. It would be easy for us to think God is nowhere to be found. Don't be fooled. God is watching. And while David may have saved his reputation in the sight of the nations, God is displeased. Does that word bring a shudder to your spine? Because it should. It should. The thought that God is displeased with what David has done should strike terror in our hearts. Who could possibly stand against the king of the entire universe, the one who keeps our hearts beating with every single moment of every single day? Who could possibly defend themselves against the displeasure of the one who fills our lungs with breath, who keeps the blood coursing through our veins, who allows the neurons in our brains to keep firing, who every moment 
He's sparing our life from a thousand different evils. The idea that the Lord is displeased with David should sink deep down into David's bones, but David is completely unaware, and in his mind, he has gotten away with everything. He has everything he could ever want. Don't be fooled by looking at this life and the prosperity of the wicked. Don't be fooled by the seeming inaction of God. God is watching, and God knows, and God will not tolerate the wickedness of humanity forever. This is, of course, one of the truths of this chapter that it reminds us of, that it teaches us. Let's just consider five truths on display from anyone. If you're paying attention to this text, we can learn these things. The first one is this. David's fall reveals the subtle nature of sin. David's fall reveals the subtle nature of sin. I guarantee you that David did not wake up that first day and say, you know what, I'm going to commit adultery today. He didn't wake up and say, you know what, I'm going to turn my back on God and do whatever I want. Sin is subtle. It builds up gradually in our hearts. I'm reminded of the Lord's warning to Cain in Genesis chapter 4 when I think of David. And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. The reality here of David's failure is something that we've seen throughout his entire life up to this point. He has a weakness for women. You look back to Deuteronomy chapter 17. God gives instructions to Israel of what his kings are supposed to be like, how they are to act, and David keeps every single one of those commands, except for one. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. David has a habit, and we've seen this throughout 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. David has a habit of adding women to his harem in contradiction to what God wants. And 2 Samuel chapter 11 may be the worst step, but it is far from the first. Have you considered the same is true in our lives? Sin, wrongdoing in God's eyes is deceptive. It's gradual to use God's language from Genesis chapter 4. It's crouching at the door. If you don't kill sin when it's small, it will continue to fester and grow because it is insidious and it will take over. Second, David's fall reveals the compounding effect of sin. The compounding effect of sin. Just as David didn't wake up that day saying, you know what, I'm going to commit adultery today, he didn't wake up thinking, I'm going to kill my loyal friend and servant, losing a military battle in order to cover everything up. But when we find ourselves trapped in sin, our minds don't work right. We operate in a cloud. See, David knew what he was doing was wrong, and yet he wasn't actually concerned with the wrongdoing itself, but he was concerned with the consequences And so one thing leads to another, leads to another, creating this massive cover-up filled with lies and deceit and murder. Do you see what the text is telling us? Notice that the, the text never once says that David actually wants Bathsheba as his wife. 
Never once are we told that he actually wants her as his wife. Uriah's murder is not a crime of passion. Not that that would make it any more excusable. He kills Uriah, not to steal his wife, but it's somehow worse. He kills Uriah in order to save his own image. Sin gives birth to sin. And again, the same thing is true for us too. When we are ensnared in sin, our minds don't work right. We may be met with shame, but sin compounds on itself. And all too often, our response is not repentance, but more sin in order to cover it up. Third, David's fall reveals the paralyzing nature of sin. Notice the paralyzing nature of sin in this passage. And not just in this passage, but the rest of the book of 2 Samuel. The aftershock of this moment in David's life will be felt through the end of his reign. David will eventually repent. He will eventually return to the Lord. But the rest of his life is lived in the shadow of this moment. Just a couple chapters later, one of his sons rapes his sister. David does nothing. Eventually, one of his sons kills that brother and David does nothing. When that son is at long last brought back to Jerusalem, David refuses to confront him. Why? I suspect it's because David, who's guilty of sexual sin, feels unable to confront his son of sin of the same nature. And then when one of his sons commits murder, he refuses to confront him because he's guilty of sin of the same nature. Sin can paralyze us into the future. If we have done something in our past that we are not proud of, we are tempted to think, how could God use someone like me? The words of the accuser, Satan, that's what his name means. The enemy of our soul. He loves to remind us of our sin. Sin is awful on its own, but it's made even worse and more horrific when it compounds on itself and paralyzes us moving into the future. So the people of God, as as we hear those accusations that are leveled at, at us, we must remember that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Fourth, David's fall gives us the right perspective on sin. You see, David certainly sins against Bathsheba. He sins against Uriah. He sins against his messengers. He sins against Joab. He sins against his soldiers and ultimately the entirety of Israel. And yet this chapter reminds us at the end that sin is fundamentally a matter between us and God. That's not to say that David didn't sin against those other people. It's not to say that we shouldn't make things right when we have wronged other people. But the text leaves us no question that sin is ultimately, primarily an affront to God. This is especially true. Especially true when we are like David, his representatives to the world. David later understands this God-centric priority of sin when he writes these words of repentance after the events of 2 Samuel chapter 11, after he comes to his senses, he writes Psalm 51 where he says this, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
David has wronged plenty of people in this chapter, hasn't he? And yet when he comes to his senses, he recognizes that sin is wrong because it is an affront to God's character. And as God's chosen king, he has dragged God's name through the mud. And as his representatives, when we sin today, we do the same. When we wrong others, we must never lose sight of this reality. Sin displeases the Lord. Finally, David's fall gives us assurance when we are the victims of sin. The horrific events of 2 Samuel 11 would be infinitely more horrific without those final words that remind us that God is watching. If someone were able to act like David and get away with it, that's a tragedy. Our hearts long for justice, especially when we have been greatly wronged by others. The assurance of those final few words is that God not only sees, but he also responds. And maybe you're someone who has been the victim of some great wrong. There's good news in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, because there is an assurance, there's confidence from those final few words that there's no such thing as getting away with it. People don't get away with it. The Lord who sees all will one day call all to account. Now, of course, this is, this is great assurance for those who suffer at the hands of others, and yet it's also terrifying. When we think of the great wrongs that we have done in our lives, to have the right perspective on life, To look at life through God's eyes is to realize the utter stench of sin in his eyes. It has come to the realization that God sees all and he is not amused by the countless constant ways we break his word each and every day. The idea that God sees all, as I, sh as I said earlier, it should bring a shudder to our spines. And yet... The story of 2 Samuel is not complete without being placed in the broader story of the Bible. You see, the message of 2 Samuel chapter 11 should lead us to this overarching, beautiful, glorious truth, not just about David, but about Jesus. While David's downfall reveals the horror of sin, it platforms the wonder of grace in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again. While David's downfall reveals the horror of sin, it also platforms the wonder of grace that is found in King Jesus, the better king. It is astounding that people like David are forgiven. It's astounding that people like me are forgiven. You know what? Forgiveness comes with a price. How could God possibly forgive someone like me? How could he possibly welcome someone like me into his family with all of the wrongs that I have done? It's only through his son, King Jesus. I mentioned at the beginning of our time together this overarching message of First and Second Samuel that we need a king who's going to point us to the true king. That's God himself. And here, more than perhaps any other part of First and Second Samuel, we see that we need a better king we need someone better than David, not, not someone who's mostly good. David himself 
needs a better king than David. He needs a king who will step in that gap and not only point him and us to the true king, but someone who's going to make a way for us to come before that king in spite of all of our sin. And wonders of wonders, that's what the true king, King Jesus, does. Not only does he succeed where David fails, where all of us fails, he lives a life of perfect obedience to his heavenly father, he also willingly takes the punishment, the displeasure of the Lord for all of our sin. You see, David's sin here might reveal the horror of sin, but it also platforms the wonder of grace that is ours in Jesus. That's the message of 2 Samuel chapter 11. It's not so much, hey, look at how awful David is here. Rather, it's a mirror to examine our own lives, examine our own hearts, realize just how far we fall short of God's righteous requirements. But even more than that, it doesn't just stop as a mirror. It points us to the wonder of grace that is in Christ Jesus That's the glorious good news of the gospel. Can you believe that in spite of all of your wanderings and failures and sins, that you can be welcomed into the family of God, that in spite of all that I have done that is displeasing to the Lord, that I never have to bear that displeasure because Jesus himself bore it on the cross. That's the message of the gospel. And that is the message that you and me and David so desperately need to hear. That in spite of all that we have done that is wrong, we are welcomed into God's family because of Jesus. The horror of sin magnifies the wonder of grace that is ours in Christ Jesus. That's true now. That's true forevermore for those who are found in him. If you find yourself trapped in sin, don't despair because there's hope. Hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even when it is hard and reveals the ugliness of our own hearts, Help us, God, to not despair, not to spiral out of control in sin when we see that, but to run to you, throw ourselves on the grace and mercy of Jesus in the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.